0: The traumas of his law enforcement career took a devastating toll on him, his family, his relationships, his physical health, his mental health, leading to a suicide attempt. He's here to tell his story on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show welcome to the law enforcement talk radio show in the law enforcement talk radio show we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences the realities of investigating crimes plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma police first responders military and victims of crime share their stories hi i'm john j wiley in addition to being a broadcaster I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com, and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Are you looking for great products? That can be game changers for people. For their overall well-being? Go to letpops.com. That's letpops.com. They make a world of difference for me. Better energy. I sleep better every night. Zero leg cramps, and more. Many people will tell you about the wonderful things that these products do for them. Plus, it can be a phenomenal business opportunity. You can help people improve their lives and for a very small fee, get a complete back end, complete website, zero inventory, no shipping, none of that stuff. Get full details, letpops.com. Joining us on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we have retired police officer Richard Odom, retired from the Dothan, Alabama, Police Department, and he has a very difficult, but very near and dear to my heart story to tell. First of all, Richard, thanks for your service. Secondly, thanks for being guests on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Both very much appreciated.
1: I I love... Your uh, what you're doing, John. I think that what you're doing has a direct purpose for exactly you know my story. Yeah, and so I'm thankful that there are cops out there like you and me that are willing to stand up. And there's not many of us to do this. Well,
0: we're going to talk um, about something, something that, that's very difficult. We're we're talking about suicide. We're talking about mental health. We're talking about traumas, how they impact our first responders. We've had a huge problem with law enforcement suicides since I was, before I was a rookie. I, I think even Joseph Wamba talks about that in his novels from the 60s and 70s, that has been a big problem. And as a matter of fact, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's about twice as many officers die by their own hand by suicide than those who are killed in the line of duty. Uh, am I wrong about that?
1: No, I, you're not. I mean, when I was doing the research for the book, um, 2019 showed a huge spike in suicides in law enforcement from the previous years. And and unfortunately, from, um, you know, your generation of law enforcement to mine, you know, we kind of it seems like we we've stepped up a little bit in time. But this problem is just getting worse. Yeah, it is. We're, it, it, we're it not used to addressing be. it like we should be. No. And by the
0: way, Richard has a website, thinblueconnect.com. That's thinblueconnect.com. And he is also uh, authoring a book called Living Inside the Thin Blue Line, The Oathbreaker. That is the working title. Is not published yet, but will be soon. Richard, one of the things that when I, I policed from 1980 – until nineteen ninety-two. I got hurt and retired. Active right. violence in the line of duty. Guy tried to shoot me in my own weapon while I was still in my hand. I don't go into a lot of details because this show's not about me. It's about the stories of others. And right one of the things is back then we didn't have critical support teams. We didn't have peer support. We didn't have anything. The way we handled problems was some really bad nights. Uh, we'd go buy a case of beer and go to a parking lot and talk. And that's what we did. And and in some degree, it worked. But it towards the end of my career, we started recognizing things like PTSD. We started recognizing, and I hate that title, by the way. I prefer (laughs) post-traumatic stress injury because that's more accurate, uh, in my opinion. And we started focusing on things like uh, critical incident, debriefing, all those things. And here's my negative before we get into your story. We Mm -hmm. as an industry have gotten much better at dealing with the big issues. The Sandy Hooks, uh, the uh, other school shootings, the ones that are blatant, wide open, uh, huge trauma. We've gotten much better about dealing with those. What we don't do, in my opinion, is we don't focus on the everyday grind and how it tears up our first responders and their families.
1: I couldn't agree with you more. You know, this is something obviously that the book is centered around. But, but, you know, let's not think about the book too much as what did we go through? You know, I recall in the very beginning of my career um, going to a suicide, first time I had ever seen blood um, in that particular scene because it was very descriptive. It stuck with me. I was a young military police officer at the time. And that has stuck with me. And and what do we do with that after, John? I don't know. You know, afterwards, at that time, and I hope that agencies are listening, I hope they're taking a, an aggressive stance and they're understanding that while you think you're the tough guy and you can handle that scene, 10 years later, that scene can kill you in a sense, right? Yeah. Be- because we've dwelled on it. And there's nobody taking steps in between actively – to say, hey, officer, you saw something horrible last week, and we get it. And we need leaders to identify that so we can say, hey, this guy here, he needs some help. I wish um, some of the leaders that were that I really believed in, they, they weren't there well, at the end let's of my career. But- let's
0: be honest. When it comes to police leadership across this country, and this is something everyone should be concerned with, here's the reason why. Our police, and I say police, that means sheriff's deputies, constables, everybody else, they serve the public. And they get there when people are having horrible times. They need help. They they need yeah. assistance. We want our first responders. We want our law enforcement officers, who are usually the first on the scene for everything, to, be, to have their A-game going on uh, because the citizens deserve that. When we use terms like police leaders— That's kind of an oxymoron. That's like saying uh, giant shrimp. Right.
1: (laughs) I I couldn't agree more with that statement as well. I mean, you and I have so many thoughts that are the same, it seems, but leadership and law enforcement. um, When you go to a plant and you work a shift from, you know, let's say 10 at night till 6 in the morning, and in that manufacturing plant, your job is to stamp or press whatever. Your job every day is the same. Law enforcement officers' jobs change every day. Every call can be different. Everything can change. And when we start talking about leaders, I I classify them. I have a leader. I have a supervisor. And then I've got a person that I call a dilettante that really, you know, we've all seen those guys. Um, But we need more leaders to stand up and say, yeah. I'm a leader. I'm going to take care of my team. We don't need bosses and supervisors. Ninety percent of your cops out there can work on their own. Right. They don't once need they know to the stand job, them over
0: them. Once they know the job, they don't need a lot of hands-on supervision. It's, and here, here's one of the things that I really focus on. And you know, when I got promoted to sergeant, things changed for me dramatically. My role in policing changed. I didn't. I I wasn't really aware. I thought I'll show people I know how to do this job and right. but, you know you really have to take a lot of care to make sure you focus on the behavior of the individual and here's the example i'll give you we, we used to jokingly say you could have someone that was a choir boy that was you know, squared away clean cut very respectful very sharp went through the academy happily married with kids 3 or 4 years later working the streets they're downing a case of beer they're living with a stripper and they're out of their they're out of their minds they're out of control so when we see an officer who has had a great reputation a great sterling job and all of a sudden they're mouthing off and they're losing it that should be a red flag to everyone that that officer needs help
1: 190% i mean um to give you a perfect example, in 1996, I was um, made deputy of the year in Houston County Sheriff's Office in Alabama. That was in 1996, right? It was a small agency. There was about 40 deputies, I think, in that department. But it still worked, okay? I mean, when you get recognized, be proud that you did something yeah. for somebody recognize you. because cops if it's, aren't it's not a huge
0: that. agency. We're going to take a short break return to our conversation Richard Odom. Uh, He is the author of the book, Living Inside the Thin Blue Line, The Oathbreaker. It's unpublished and will be available soon. And his website is thinblueconnect.com. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. There's only one official Facebook page for the show. Do a search on Facebook for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. And be sure to click like. return to our conversation on the law enforcement talk radio show with Richard Odom. Richard is a retired police officer from Dothan Alabama, Dothan Police Department. He is also author of the book Living Inside the Thin Blue Line, The Oathbreaker which is not published yet but should be available soon. Website is thinblueconnect.com One of the things we're talking about Richard is you know something that was swept under the rug for a very long time that we're more open about. It's officers mental health uh, suicide attempts all these other things, and as a result of multiple repeated exposures to trauma. Are we there yet? No, I don't think so. Uh, are a lot of agencies better than they used to be? Absolutely. But your story is going to take a very uncomfortable toll because you are a survivor of a suicide attempt, aren't you?
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. In, before we went to break, you know, I was mentioning and. In 1996, I was deputy of the year in Houston County Sheriff's Office in Alabama, and in 2006 one night, uh, in the beginning of January, I decided I've had enough of this life. I have created my own little um, dealing with infidelity, dealing with alcoholism, alcoholism. Um, like many officers, I had severe back pains, and I got addicted to hydrocodone. Uh-huh. Well, during that time, all of these things combining from 1996 to 2006, things began to tumble out of control and get worse. And one night I decided, hey, this is enough for me, so I'm going to do this thing that I always do. I'm, you know, I drink a lot, right? I mean, I could drink a case of beer and walk around. Now, that's not a good thing to brag about. At all, so I drank as much as I could that night. Got on my motorcycle after I left that bar, and I went to that bar solely to drink to get my nerve up because I decided I needed to plow my motorcycle into a telephone pole or a tree. Um, it didn't happen, so I wake up on the side of the road. Somebody's yelling at me, "Here, you okay?" And I'm to detect- you know after that. John, that's that was the hard part. Then you're dealing with the shame and the guilt. I told absolutely nobody, not even my wife, who who helped me with with this whole story that I was trying to commit suicide that night. There was one man that knew he's he's mentioned in the book. He was the only person I trusted. But I think what's more important, John, is what I did after that. It is, and what and we'll, the agency we'll get to did that. after that.
0: We'll get to that in a moment. I, I, I got to make okay. a, a comment that, in the term I use, a trifecta. It might be three, might be four, uh, of things that happen that precede a lot of police-involved suicides and death by suicide. Mm-hmm. There is exposure to repeated trauma, which we'll talk about in a few moments. There is substance abuse with alcohol and or drugs, quite often prescription drugs that get out of control. There is marital problems, and there is also job-related problems. And then when they all kind of collide, quite often these law enforcement officers die by suicide. And it sounds like you were hitting all of those.
1: I'm hitting on every cylinder. I mean, if it was a mistake for a cop to make, I think I was making it. Yeah, um, I was a, a good dog trainer. I trained police dogs for years, and I loved it. Um, I've been dog bit thirteen times, and those are scars that I can carry. I'm proud of those scars. Uh, you know, they came from training sense. The scars that you can't be proud of are the ones that you you throw yourself into. You know, when and when we're talking about um, having. These issues, and and you combine them with your occupational stressors, addictions, infidelity, all of these things you're going to compound. I think you know we talked about supervisors, and you said you'd been promoted to sergeant. I'm going to be honest with you; that is the toughest job in the uh, department.
0: Look, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> you're t- and I'm going to tell you right now: when it comes to any agency, large, small, in between, it's the Doesn't sergeants make who make the make it work every day.
1: The the sergeant is absolutely your backbone. Right, your corporal is your guy. You're saying, "Hey, you're doing good." And we wanted you. We want you to get there. So follow this path. But then, what happens after they get promoted to sergeant, John? Yeah. Look at the military. They've got primary leadership development courses. They've got this course and that course. But you go to an agency, and where well, I don't care what state or country, you get promoted to sergeant, and all, be, all because you got three stripes, you're a genius. No, right? But no, that's the a point. Of that is, is that. While, while the right person may have been promoted, and, and I hope that that's happening, that person needs a little more training because that's the person, man, woman, doesn't make a difference, who's our first line for our cops on the street. That sergeant's right. carrying more responsibility than the chief of police, and, and there's some chiefs out there going, yeah, okay, listen, brother. The chief is at home at 10 o'clock at night of sleep. That's right. <laughs> that sergeant is out there trying to decide, okay, this cop made this mistake. This is how we got to fix this administratively. That's right. This cop over here is having some mental issues, and I have to sit down with him because he is my cop. We're not teaching our sergeants that. We're hoping that they learn that.
0: Well, we've even gotten so far away, and, and we'll get back to your story in a moment. Back in my day, we did roll call. Every shift, we'd start roll call, and we'd have an inspection of the troops. And you would get yep. very close to them. You'd look at them in their uniform, make sure they're squared away, but you'd also smell their breath. You'd look in their eyes. And <laughs> uh, uh, what I tried to do, uh, if we weren't too busy, it was meet with everyone at least a couple times a week and, and have a little conversation. How are things at home? How are you doing? Try to get a right. feel uh, for what their general – emotional state was because the truth is we ran from call to call to call and one moment you're dealing with a life and death situation your adrenaline's going full bore then it's a traffic stop then it's something else then it's a family dispute then it's a parking point yeah. then it's back to full-on adrenaline dump because a life or death situation and no one really tells you or teaches you or trains you how to deal with that
1: i i I couldn't a- agree more again about that. I mean, you know, you go through and you start looking at who helped me with my stressors in my career. Let's not talk about administrative stuff or anything or research. I just look at it from my point of view as a cop of 17 years. Uh, I can name out of a 17-year career, I could name three cops that were my bosses that took an honest interest in what I did. They were genuinely concerned for my well-being. You know, we need more cops like that that are are getting into those roles. And these guys were people that I knew as sergeants and got promoted. They were promoted and went on up to command. But I just I feel like, John, you know, we're not getting that across. I mean, that job as a sergeant's tough, and you dump all that responsibility on that one person, and you give them barely any guidance other than to say, your reports better be correct when they're turned in from your officers. You ensure sure that your shift is off at the correct time. You know, these are administrative tasks, and we've got to start starting in the beginning with our cops at the academy. we got to start while they're still on the hanging, you know, that low-hanging fruit on the tree we got to go back to the academy and say, you're going to run into this if you stay in law enforcement.
0: Well, you you will. And we're going to turn to our conversation with Richard in just a moment. This is the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Richard is author, co-author of the book, and it is called Living Inside the Thin Blue Line, The Oathbreaker, which we'll talk about in a few moments. His website is also thinblueconnect.com. This is the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show page or email J at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. return to conversation with Richard Odom. He's a retired police officer, retired from the Dothan Police Department in Alabama. He is also co-author of the book, Living Inside the Thin Blue Line, The Oath which we'll talk about in a few moments. And His website is thinblueconnect.com. Richard is a suicide attempt survivor. He's going to talk about his mental health and people need to have trigger warnings. If you are sensitive to these sorts of things, you need to be aware that we're going to talk about it because it's an issue. And it's an issue that's been going on for a long time. And by the way, your home state where you policed in Alabama, I've had multiple guests on. Uh, Huntsville, Alabama, where officers are in prison. Uh, uh, Montgomery, Alabama, where, where police officers are in prison. Uh, some would say unjustly. Uh, there's a lot of pressure going on. And quite honestly, Richard, you know, even working as a police officer in Baltimore, we were still trying to escaped the behavior of the civil rights stuff from the 60s that happened in Alabama. Um, and yeah. those things don't go away, no matter how hard you try.
1: They they don't. Um, you know, when you get a stigma, and, and it kind of what you're talking about, John, to me is, is that stigma, right? And that stigma can, uh, whether it's about the civil rights movements that happen in Alabama, you know, you see those, you know, just... There's pictures that you don't want to see, especially as a canine trainer of old dog handlers and their dogs, you know. Um, But it's that stigma that that law enforcement community, we've got to figure out a way to get around. And for an example of that, uh, recently I'm, I'm going through, and of course I've got pictures that I'm looking at as I talk about writing a book and putting a book together. But I commonly would reach out to officers and say, hey, they're, you know, these are guys that I worked with, and I'd say I have a picture of you and I, and I want to put it in here. Is it okay? And and it's not that you have to, but it's a common courtesy, right? right. Um, but I found some officers still holding the stigma of my accident from twenty years ago at bay, right? They're still kind of garnering that, and that is the same thing. What if I were in a sensitive state of mind and I reached out to this guy, and maybe I was still suicidal, and then there's this stigma from twenty years ago, and that fed something. We have to be careful, and we got to figure out how to get around
0: this stuff. I, I, I um, don't know what the answer to that is, Richard. And, and I, all that I'm related to is, is of duty deaths. And I was talking with a friend named Kim whose uh, a husband, a police officer, worked for me for quite a while, and then I transferred, and he was shot and killed in line of duty. And hmm. what I said to Kim was, listen, we're great friends, and then I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing, so I ignore you. And right. she said the worst thing you can do is do that. the worst has already yeah. happened just just if I don't want to talk about it I'll tell you what I want to talk about If we're going to talk about fishing we'll talk about fishing but 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 be there and I think part of this is that many law enforcement officers are fearful deep down inside if this could happen to you, it could happen to me
1: that is um there is so much out there, John that shows uh that stigma how it can can hurt us and absolutely if you're going to come talk to me as a cop um, and I know what you're doing as a cop is hurting you, likely I don't want to talk about it. Right. I don't want to hear about it because it's scaring the out of me.
0: Yes, exactly.
1: Um, and we don't want to step on a, each other's toes, but we need to. Yeah, I mean there's a border patrol. Well, he's not anymore. Many years ago he was a border patrol agent. He lives in Texas now. He's a wonderful guy. One night he's on duty doing his job, and a a migrant complains against him. Gary ends up getting put in prison by some federal prosecutor and ruins his life for doing his job. Right. And I went through that and read that whole thing, and Gary and I talked, and I haven't talked to him in almost 20 years. I mean, he's been to prison and out. President Trump pardoned him. And, you know, when a president pardons somebody, you got to sit back and say, okay, maybe the guy— didn't do what that prosecutor said, right? But this poor man's been stuck with the stigma of being a convicted felon, Right. And I know that that seems like a, a magnitude of, like, oh my God, to your head, but you compare that stigma to things like, I went out one night and I decided I had enough of life, so I'm going to drive my my motorcycle into a tree, and because I didn't, you know, I didn't die, and, you know, instead of that and me looking for what can happen after I got stuck with that stigma. Um, now I'm very thankful that I'm still alive. Do not misunderstand what I'm saying. Right. I mean, my life is completely different now to then, but the, the weeks before the time, you know, when a cop reaches out one time and asks for help and you deny it in any form, they will not ask again. And that cop's statement could be simple as, hey, John, I will help today. Yep. That's all it meant, right? That could be it. And if you didn't respond to it or if you decided at that time to say something like, well, if it's going to help you, then go ahead and do it. Your tone and your wording can affect that person in ways you have no we clue. We used to
0: have a saying. And look, there was no, I'm having a tough, tough time. If you if you said that you're immediately suspended immediately because of civil you, liability they're worried but the, the 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 saying from the old timers was suck it up buttercup you're Baltimore police and you got a job yeah. to do and by the way we're all we all got wounds and we'll lick those wounds later on that's the approach they took
1: I I think that 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 attitude and I was very much raised in the generation of these we're tough cops and We can't be conquered and all this wonderful stuff, right? Now, that is an attitude that you need to display when you're in a fight for your life. Right. Okay? The attitude you need to display around your peers is, I'm here for you, and I can help you. I don't care who you are. You're wearing a badge. You're the spouse of a cop. Whatever that situation is, just listen um in your career did you, we're not here
0: in your career did you go through some things that 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 still stick with you
1: you know john we talked a few minutes ago we were talking about the time leading up to my suicide attempt and and i remember um i had been transferred to a different squad and you know they were really not happy with me because they knew i was having problems but nobody was coming and talking to me and saying hey and and the leaders that really helped me before they were out of my, out of my life now. And I went to a Lieutenant one night and I said, I need help. I'm having problems and I can't take it no more. And after about five minutes of conversation, his end up response to me was, what do you think I can do about this? Listen, that will send a person completely out of control. So that's an incident that I looked at now. Now, I'll say this. At that time, he didn't cause me to go commit suicide or try to commit suicide, right? That wasn't. But I look back in hindsight and I say, hey, that guy who's supposed to be my lieutenant probably should have said, this is what we're going to do. Yelling at me because he got frustrated. I mean, you're dealing with a cop who's got all this trauma in his brain, and now he's dealing with infidelity. Now he's dealing with alcoholism, and he's got addiction to pills. Do you really think my brain was in tune enough for you to, to raise your voice at me in any way? Those incidences can mark us for life. Right. No, they and can't. And they're just not enjoyable, you know. Um,
0: and unfortunately, what winds up happening is that same officer is put back on the street and go told to handle calls and say, we'll deal with it later on. Uh, but the problem is, most often they don't deal with it later on until something catastrophic happens. And what catastrophic things happen quite often as we hear and you think how does this happen an officer gets arrested for dui an officer has a domestic disturbance call that goes south Uh, there's a suicide attempt there's all these other things that happen that are red flags and the the problem is these red flags are evidence well well before the cataclysmic event and they're ignored we're talking with richard odom this is the law enforcement talk radio show we're gonna take a short break We'll be right back. Are you looking for great products? That could be game changers for people, for their physical health, for their overall well-being. Go to letpops.com. That's L E T. Pops.com. I take these products they make a world of difference for me better energy I sleep better every night full night sleep every night zero leg cramps and more many people will tell you about the wonderful things that these products do for them plus it can be a phenomenal business opportunity you can help people improve their lives and for a very small fee Get a complete back end, complete website, zero inventory, no shipping, none of that stuff. Get full details on our website, letpops.com. That dot com. Discover the exciting world of podcasts at jefepods.com. From captivating stories to life advice and much more.
1: There's a podcast for every interest
0: and passion. Be entertained by your favorite radio personalities in both English and Spanish.
1: Don't waste any more time. Find a great English or Spanish language podcast to follow and discover a world of possibilities in your own language.
0: Find the best podcasts at jefepods.com. Returning conversation with Richard Odom on the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Richard is a retired Dothan, Alabama police officer, and he is also co-author of the book "Living Inside the Thin Blue Line: The Oathbreaker," which is not published yet. Hopefully, it'll be available very soon. The website is thinblueconnect.com. That's thinblueconnect.com. Now, in the title of your book, "Living Inside the Thin Blue Line: The Oathbreaker," that part about the oathbreaker keeps jumping out at me. Is there something in there that that you don't talk about or uh, you are hesitant to talk about?
1: You know, um, the title by itself, John, is really representative of how I felt the night of that wreck. Um, The night that I tried to take my life. Uh, ever since then i felt like you know i had broken my oath i had violated it to my community i get that
0: i get it 100 percent. but you know exactly what we're talking about there's people who do things that that struggle in our occupation and then there's people who commit crimes and uh that's just what i'm getting at right there and there's really no there's really no sensitive way of saying it
1: no there there's not i mean when you make a mistake um for me, it's just about standing up and saying, I, I made a mistake, I screwed up. It's personal accountability. That's the first step to anything that you're going to, any process that you feel like is going to help you heal, I don't care what it is, personal accountability is going to be the first step. We got to realize in ourselves we made a mistake and, and where we're at, you know, and if you screwed up, just say, I, I made a mistake, I screwed up because I've learned over time. Be honest. No matter how bad it hurts you, be
0: honest. Absolutely. And they say that the truth will set you free, is the old saying. And by the way, people need to understand this. I've been sober almost 32 years. And there's a reason why I don't drink alcohol anymore. And I don't understand what the relation is. But for me, personally, throwing alcohol, a depressant, on top of any kind of post-traumatic stress situation is like throwing gasoline on a fire.
1: I, I would say that alcoholism is a large part of of our problem in our community, and and you know, often as I'm thinking about things, and I want to say this: I hope everybody's listening. Anybody out there has got a friend who loves to drunk dial? You hear it a couple times, two three times a week. Hey guys, you need to call, you need to talk to that person. In an intimate way, you know, confidentially, take them off to the side. I mean, there was a period of time leading up to that accident. I was drunk dialing nightly. Yeah. And, you know, that was really, I look back now, John, that drunk dialing, a scream for help.
0: It is. And I did it. And I haven't done it in 30 some odd years.
1: Uh, so. I quit drinking in 2007, you know, even after the, the suicide attempt. I continued to drink. Now, there was uh, an older man, and, and I became a mason later, and that helped me, the teachings that I learned there. And eventually one day I was, um, within a year, I said, hey, I got this drinking has to stop. Because um, even after the wreck, you're still in that world of shame and guilt, and I mean, you're still, I mean, you're literally, the night I was laying in the hospital, People in my room, I was laying there planning on how I was going to kill myself again. Right. Now, did your career end shortly after that? It did. Uh, Within seven days of the wreck, the agency terminated me. You know, nobody came to me and said, hey, you may have a problem. And that was very disappointing, you know, because I had had up to that point, I had asked for help. You know, it was in a small way, but that's where we have to recognize when somebody's reaching out to you. To have that ability, but yeah, I got terminated. And within six months, a couple agencies had reached out to me and said, hey, would you come to work here? And it was mostly because of my canine training experience. But I just, at that time, John, I, and I still struggle with it, I couldn't bring myself to put the badge back on again. I think that in the long run, that was a huge mistake of mine because I was literally running steal from my shame and my guilt. I know police officers that have had DUIs and they recovered from yep. them. One of them, he's a great guy. He's a small in, in down in South Alabama. Um, he's a lieutenant there.
0: When I was policing, that never happened. It's happening more frequently now. They, people get the help they need and they they're able to rehabilitate their lives and yeah. their careers and have great careers. And the truth is, Look, every agency I know in the United States is got some sort of recruiting problem and retention problem. So when poli- people start getting really good at policing, it's usually around the eight, nine year mark and that's when things start really going south for a lot of them and they leave. And so we have a vacuum of experienced officers and then we're not recruiting people like we used to. Uh, so if you can take those people and rebuild their lives and rehabilitate their careers, it's a win-win for everybody, especially community. I got to ask you, switch to your book. So you wrote this book, Living Inside the Thin Blue Line, The Oathbreaker. It's, it's, is it almost complete yet?
1: So the, the book is done. Uh, I have been editing it like uh, a madman. <laughs> In my my ambition to get something, I had four guys selected and one civilian. Um, so there was five you know readers, basically beta readers, I think is the term. And I was in such a hurry. I mean, like, when this thing hit me to start writing it, John, I sat down and started writing. And for about three months, I would write about 16 hours a day, 17 hours a day, and never get tired. So but to to have beta readers out there, right, this was this thing I was after, and I was like, man, this is so much information. And I was excited because I thought, you know, I found the solution. So... I send the, the draft to them, and, and they read it, and they come back, and they say, hey, dude, do you know what a period is yeah. <laughs> or a comma? And I went, yeah, I kind of slipped on that one. So we've been doing that, and I would think in about 45 days it would actually be available. Hopefully it be yeah. available very,
0: very soon. i got to yeah. ask you, was this therapeutic? Is this the reason why you wrote the book, or was it because you wanted to benefit other people or a combination of the two?
1: It was a combination, and and the third part, and I think the most important part for me was my faith pushed me to it, John. Uh Um, I was just sitting around one day, and all of a sudden it went, hey, you need to write a book. And my brain went, why do you want to write a book and talk about that you've been hiding for 20 or 30 years, right? (laughs) And it just became this overpowering feeling. And then it, it started, and everything made sense, and it started coming out, and I think as far as being therapeutic, absolutely. When you can start putting things down on paper, I mean, the things that I wrote down compared to what's in the book is completely different, right? I got a a stack of paper that's three feet high of of drafts that I've done, right? Because the message of the book is more important than somebody getting involved with, oh, I heard he was, he was uh, having an affair on his wife in the book. That's not important. The act of infidelity is important. The actual circumstances that happen are not. Right,
0: and right? that's not unusual either. I, I got focus on your website now, thinblueconnect.com. What happens there and why does it
1: exist? Thinblueconnect.com is a place where I hope officers can go. I mean, there are suicide hotlines on there, anywhere from federal and state laws to mental health. It's an informational site for cops. I hope that it there's some information that can help. Of course, we've got a Facebook page, but the whole intent, this whole purpose, John, that that, we're, that that this is happening is very simple. I didn't want to see any more cops hurt like I was. Right. And I could see all that, but all of that is lost, and, and the process that you know happened before that and after – How can we change it? That's really what the book is about.
0: So the question I have before we close, how are you doing today? How is your life compared to when it was at its darkest compared to now?
1: It's better. I will tell any cop out there, if you're struggling with this, it's never going to go away completely. But you can learn how to deal with it. You can learn how to communicate, because I didn't. I didn't know how to tell people I need help or even talk to my wife. Um... Now it's different, right? right? And my wife and I laugh, and we smile at each other, and it's been a long road. Yeah, but it, it has. It's and a by much the way, these
0: things we're talking about don't just apply to police officers. Uh, the other first responders, firefighters, EMTs, dispatchers, corrections officers, military, so many people go through these issues. There is light at the end of the tunnel for sure. Richard, Richard, thanks so much for being a guest on the show and telling your story. Very much appreciated. I enjoyed it. If you want to be a guest on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show, simply contact us. It couldn't be easier. You can send us a message on Facebook. Look for and like the Law Enforcement Talk radio show page or email J at letradio.com. That's jay at letradio.com. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.